Good morning. I'm here with Caitlin to talk about quite a few things. The, I thought the most important one was ICE-23, but uh, it might actually be this balloon over China. But anyway, the first thing I want to show you, uh, I wanted to use as my background, but I'm going to have to just share this window. And so it may take me a minute to share the right window. Um, share screen there, this one, there. This I thought was wonderful. They say it has no scientific value, but I thought it was great. This is a lot, a picture constructed by taking about 15 years of images with adaptive optics from Earth under the atmosphere of a nearby star, think about 100 light years away, and five planets orbiting it. And you can see them go. This one way out here and three others. These are all huge things, like bigger than Jupiter and much further away. Uh, the biggest, the one out here is like as far away as Pluto, and this one's twice as far away as Pluto. And that's why they're able to get pictures. But still, I think this is just amazing and wonderful that we, uh, you can actually literally see exoplanets now directly orbiting no. their star instead of using some subtle indirect method, like a subtle darkening in the star as a planet passes in front of it or something. I had no idea this was possible at all. Well, no, no. What's what's really incredible? Uh, this has been done for a while, but what's incredible is that they did it within Earth's atmosphere using yeah. adaptive optics. That is what's incredible. Um, I've seen images like that before. This is, you know, ex we've seen exoplanets before, but it's always from space telescopes, never from the ground. That is incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, very nice. All right, and uh, I just want to mention the ice because I got more too many articles here. The new ice I thought was awesome. Um, there are 20 known crystalline structures of ice, and now there are three amorphous structures of ice, and this is moving us closer to understanding water. It may seem ridiculous at first thought, but water is incredibly important, and it is incredibly poorly understood. Water is amazingly complicated in the world of material science and probably responsible for life and a lot, the strange properties of water, and ice continues this. And what they found is in space... Water does not freeze into normal ice because it's so cold and there's not much gravity to put pressure on it. So it creates strange sort of snow-like structures that are just sort of powdery stuff. And they found by cooling something to minus 200 centigrade and rotating a ball of, of ice with steel balls in it to like mill it and grind it down to powder, they created this amorphous ice structure that has the same density as water. And so they're they're thinking these structures may have, have the result that there are two different forms of amorphous ice, one more dense than the other, floating over the other like an ocean. And that might be the actual structure in, in things like comets and uh, and moons and stuff that are, have water on the surface, these strange pieces of water. And I thought that was very interesting. It reminded me of a science fiction novel from years ago called Ice Nine, which introduced this concept to me. I'd first heard of it where there's all these different structures of ice and maybe one of them would have some bizarre lethal property. Um, of course, nothing quite that extreme happened, but it is amazing how complicated ice is. It reminds me of the amazing world of material science, like the last podcast we did with graphene at the magic angle. You know, material, the matter you use for for is really quite interesting and complicated. These, it has interesting properties that lead to semiconductors and chips and all these other things. So, yes. So, so Sam, a, a lot of the audience might not know that Ice Nine is a uh, fictional, yeah, of course, uh, ice in a story that that they would drop 
a little bit into the water and then it'd freeze all the water. And that was that was the catastrophe that that the fictional catastrophe of Ice Nine. Yeah, but but you know, it's it, it introduced me to the surprising science that there really are many different kinds of ice, you know. I before that I thought yeah. there's just one kind of ice. Ice is ice. How complicated could it be? And holy cow, it's really complicated. Anyway, let's let's go on to you with this China story, which turned out to be much bigger than I thought it was. Yeah. So at first I thought, oh, this has to be just a huge misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, that's what I thought. This is nonsense. So, doesn't even matter. We shouldn't even talk about it. It's just nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so a few days ago, uh, the military noticed this satellite. Uh, and by satellite, I mean like a balloon. <laughs> So yeah. A giant helium balloon, uh, many times higher than the highest uh, airplane uh, or jet airliner, and it it's over color. I think it was Colorado, um, Montana. Sorry, it's uh, it's over Montana, and the uh, the United States is saying it's from China, and I'm just like, really? Well, Who cares China, about a balloon dude. anyway? And you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but apparently, it's totally a big deal, and uh, and China's is like. Oopsie! Our spice balloon ended up over Montana somehow. Our bad, you know. And, like it can go and, like uh, what five thousand miles off course by accident. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the thing is, is just a helium balloon. Helium balloons don't don't last forever, and and um, it it has some solar panels on it that you can see. Uh, and yeah, it's over Montana, and and China admitted it's it's their thing, but they're just like oopsie daisy. We didn't mean to put our, our spy satellite over Montana, where you have a bunch of your secret bases in the United States. And it's like, why is China doing this? They have space, uh, you know, rockets and stuff. If they really wanted to spy on Mont- Montana, they could just send up a rocket, have it, you know, pretend to be a weather satellite, and have yeah, it just don't orbit. They have, don't they have a ton of satellites like we do? Who uses balloons yeah. for spying anymore? I don't know, but apparently China has it. And apparently because it's so high up, I, I guess it's really hard to shoot down or something. You would think they would have the ability to just take it down, but I don't know what's going on there. Uh, yeah, China's like, oopsie daisy. It, yeah, it's our balloon. Uh, and it, it's going over a bunch of uh, sensitive military installations. The United States government is saying, well, you know, yeah, we're taking precautions. We're not saying what the precautions are because it's the military. You don't have a right to know, but... You know, they're taking it really seriously. And apparently Blinken is not going to Beijing over the <laughs> over the spice. Yeah, about the spice satellites. And like it's this is becoming a huge diplomatic, you know, uh, affair. You know, what what's what's going on? How did this get here? Is this really just a, a oopsie daisy by China? How does this happen? How does a balloon, a high tech balloon, solar panels, presumably cameras and monitoring equipment from China end up over Montana? Yeah. <laughs> and and this you know, is so we're, silly. Getting, we're getting so hostile with China. We really seem to be warming up to a war with China. Like every week, another story like this happens. And right. the- well, I hope the tensions die down. Yeah. Well, I know, but the, I, I don't think it will because something else I learned just a couple days ago, I listened to a podcast analyzing why is China supporting Russia in the war with Ukraine? And they said, you really have to understand the Chinese politics and the Chinese mentality. And they say, um, the main thing to understand is that they only care about their internal issues. They really don't care what happens to the rest of the world at all, which I think is a legacy of the Cultural Revolution. I knew a woman who was one of the first scientists to return to China from America in like the 70s. And she told me when she went there, 
China had been so isolated that the Chinese biologists took her aside and asked her if they have a special word for foreign people, Gaijin or something. Foreign people have a word that is not human. There's humans, which are Chinese people, and then there's foreign people. And she said they took her aside and the biologist asked her whether foreign women had periods because they thought they were a biologically separate species. And so the, the very isolationist, and the thing that amazed me, I didn't realize this, is around in Bill Clinton's time in 1999, we bombed a Chinese embassy by accident and killed like 23 people. I remember this being the news at the time. And in China, most people still believe that that was a deliberate act and that we murdered a bunch of Chinese because of like a sort of conspiracy theory at the time. And they believe that NATO bombed them and they are very, very hostile to NATO. And they think NATO is an enemy of China. And therefore, they believe the Russian story that NATO is the aggressor and that, China, that Russia has every right to invade Ukraine and they should support Ukraine. And it just, I had no idea how deep these animosity goes. And uh, so it's, the hardliners in China are very, very angry at America. And maybe they did pressure them into spying on America and they would like to like ignite a war. So. Yeah. So, so just, just to clarify. Um, so, so Gaijin is a Japanese word, not Chinese okay, word. I, I, can, and, I don't and, know and, the right and, word. And, yeah. 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 I don't know the right word either. Uh, but guy means outsider and, Outside and Jin means persons, but it's still like, you know, and outsider, somehow the you same know, thing. there's not, a special yeah. word for outside people because yeah. of the cultural revolution where they totally closed their borders and yeah. isolated themselves from the world. Right, right. I'm, I'm whatever the word is, it has to be worse than 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 Gaijin because, like I said, it's literally means outside person. <laughs> yeah, well, I think but, that would also yeah. literally means outside person, but it is, you know, they, they said, you know, people would flock around them. And in fact, when I went to China for DEFCON China, there was a guy with me who was um, part of the Wall of Sheep team. And he was like six foot six with a long black beard. And people would cluster around him to like feel his beard and stuff because he was such an exotic character. You know, and they say many Chinese people have never seen anybody that is not Chinese. And the physical differences are strange, like you're a strange, mysterious zoo animal for people to see you. It's the isolationism is hard to grasp for America. Anyway, um, so uh, the Google had a Google Fi breach, and this um, made it possible for SIM swap attacks. So it a uh, Google Fi was their wireless service. I remember signing up for it, and somehow I couldn't get it in time. I got it because supposedly it would work in China. It was an internet service, and um, apparently it's telecommunications and mobile internet. And they had a breach, so people could get your your um, uh, your the identifying number for your phone. I think your uh, ID number, SSID, or I forget the. I'm getting the wrong term here, but there's there's a the a technical number for your phone they were able to get, and your phone number. IMEI. IMEI. Get your IMEI on your phone number. Then they can go find your name, and then they can call your phone company and social engineer them and say, "I lost my phone. Please move my account to another phone." This is SIM swapping, which is a main technique to get in. And after that, they can break into your stuff. And people say this did happen to one customer who suffered from this. The hacker took over everything, my email, my financial account, the Authy Authenticator app, all because they were able to receive my SMSs. So it's a big deal. And this particular breach opened the Google Fi customers to it, but this keeps happening to people all the time. If they just get some information about you that they can confuse a customer service rep at T-Mobile or something, then they can get in your phone. So 
it's a thing to be aware of. And uh, let me go back to you with YouTube. Yeah, so I didn't know this, but the main channels on YouTube are not the big earners like PewDiePie or, um, you know, Veritasium. Those things are not big earners, which, which big earners on YouTube are kids YouTube. Uh, so apparently kids channels earn more money than the other channels on YouTube. And a lot of people, a lot of parents uh, are very, you know, understandably frustrated with their kids and just sit them in front of YouTube. And, you know, the article sort of focuses on, you know, well, how much screen time is okay for children? And there is some research saying you don't want to put kids in front of screens for too long because it ham hampers their emotional regulation development. So kids who watch a lot of TV or are put in front of screens have a more difficult time sort of calming down on their own and stuff like that. Um, it, you know, there's no studies that said, say that watching a lot of TV is going to ruin your kids, you know, but it's, it's, there's not a whole lot of evidence saying it's good for them either. Uh, so, uh, but what's really interesting, though, is that, you know, YouTube is open to everyone. And normally when you make children's content, you really have to have a background in child development and stuff. Like one of the things that was very interesting to me uh, when I was learning child development was to go back and rewatch a lot of the old child-based TV um, that is currently going on and was going on when I was a child. Uh, and so, for example, you watch like Mr. Rogers, and I hated Mr. Rogers growing up. But as someone who, like, you know, learned a lot about child development, the guy was an absolute genius. Like, one of the things that you notice with a lot of children's television is that the shots are very long. Normally in modern cinema, you have like a three second shot followed by a three second shot followed by a three second shot. But when you make kids' content, you have to be aware that. You have to sort of keep these long uh, shots and, and you have to be very literal with everything you do. So, so like when Mr. Rogers would sit down, he would never use metaphor. You know, everything was very spelled out um, and everything was, you know, he, he there was a giant focus on emotional development, not just intellectual development, like you see on Sesame Street. All this stuff is very important. Um, and the people making YouTube kids content don't necessarily have that background. And that's what's really scaring me is that if if we're putting a bunch of kids in front of YouTube, as opposed to professionally generated content for children by child development researchers, uh, by people with backgrounds in this field, um, it, it it's basically giving them candy. And it's, you know, that's not yeah. good. Yeah. What do you think about My Little Pony? That's a little, that's for older Kids, I think, uh, like, you know, grade school. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I was a fan growing up and I'm still a fan today. I think they're great. It just seems like uh, uh, similar, very, very, it seems like learned people have carefully crafted that content. Right. Oh, 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 yeah. So if you want to go back to like the 1980s and like cartoons as like product placement, then you get into a whole different uh, field where you have uh, these you know, media is directed towards children designed to like sell them toys, which oh, is, you know, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, and, and that's kind of where focus yeah. on interaction and friendship and stuff in the show. That seems like it's lessons to improve you as a person. So as far as I know, uh, well, okay. So my little pony. So here's, I'm, I'm going to geek out a bit because I love anything Hasbro. I, I know the problems with them, but you give me some Transformers, you give me some My Little Pony, I will talk your head off. Okay, so 
with My Little Pony, there was G1. That was pure fluff. It wasn't pro-social, nothing. It was to sell toys, just like the original Transformers. Um, and it was fantastic. <laughs> it was, um, and that's where we get T-Rex and, and all these, these fun uh, characters um, and the sea ponies. And they were just dancing and kids loved it. Um, and then you had G2, which was the, they realized that the original audience of My Little Pony was growing up. So they had like teenage ponies dealing with like boys and all this stuff. And then G3, they sort of went backwards and like, let's aim it at little little girls again. Um, and then G4 came out. So G stands for generation. Uh, G4 came out. And that's the one I think that got really popular. Um, and basically what happened is that Hasbro started their own TV channel and they needed uh, educational content um, for, you know, FCC something, I don't know. Uh, but they decided to turn their My Little Pony uh, show into, originally it was going to be a, a educational content for children, teaching them pro-social uh, education while selling toys. I mean, best of both worlds, right? <laughs> and it ended up being really popular because the, the woman, I think, who designed it, her name was Lauren Faust, who is who is very big in the industry. No one knew why she was working on My Little Pony. <laughs> it's like Steven Spielberg working on, I don't know, um, oh God, what's a terrible movie? Uh, working on a new Fast and Furious. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? They thought um, it was funny, and- but in fact, it was a, a good market, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a great market. She realized, I mean, she, like a lot of us, you know, grew up with My Little Pony and, you know, wanted to tell the stories that she had as a child that she had with her ponies. Um, and then it, it kind of grew. And then at, at the second season, they're like, this is a hit. So we can't have it be like educational content anymore. So they <laughs> removed that. And uh, so season one was actually, yeah, educational content. Season two onward was not. Um, and then and then now we're at generation five, which is CG and everything. But anyways, that's the whole story of My Little Pony. Yeah. Uh, but it is it, it it is really primarily designed to sell toys. I mean, that's really what it's designed to do, which is a separate oh. issue. Well, you know, this reminds me of, of something I learned about Doctor Who, you know, the long running British science fiction show. And it's just a ridiculous sort of satire science fiction fantasy show with with meaning, you know, just meaningless gadgets. But it was originally funded by like a scientific agency in Britain to be educational teaching science to children. And the only clue of that is there are no robots in Doctor Who because they thought robots were unscientific. So all the monsters are like living beings inside cages and stuff like the Daleks, because that was the rule to make it more scientific. And it's like totally (laughs) devoid of scientific content, but it was originally funded as a scientific educational program. Yeah, I vaguely remember a similar children's program um, and I don't even remember the name of it, but it was a, it was framed as a science fiction program. But every week or every episode, they, the science fiction revolved around real world science. So you know, someone would have a black hole, and they would learn about the event horizon and everything. It was aimed at children. It was designed to teach them science, uh, but it used science fiction as a framework to do that. And I totally forget the name of it, but I remember liking it. Um, well, that sounds great. I mean, I science fiction inspired me a lot as a child to like get interested in science. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like it seems like science fiction is really great initially. Like you really get into it, and then you realize that like ninety nine percent of science fiction is the exact same. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> you sort of move around to. Yeah. And then I was very upset to realize how hopeless you know talking to alien species is. That was a whole lot of it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, there, there's that. Um, there's, yeah, talking to alien species would be very difficult. Interacting with them, living with them. Could you imagine 
living with a species that evolved outside of Earth. They that cannot I, eat any of the same food. That I thought would be very they, interesting. I was very let down yeah. to discover that the evidence is very strong that there is nobody like that out there and will never be able to do that. Yeah. Um, well, yes, there, there's that. But even if there was, uh, you know, the chances that they come from a planet with the exact same gravity as Earth, with the exact same atmosphere, well, sure. that, you know, our that our foods would be compatible, that we we communicate using sounds in a similar fashion. I mean, well, it's, it's well, just I didn't impossible. even care about that. That I just saw as a Hollywood convenience. I was interested in like the hard science stories like how Clement of really alien beings and then interacting with them, which I thought would be very interesting. They'd have a different viewpoint on the world and stuff. They would, they would, um, and, and there, there's a few good science fiction stories about that. But even still, they they sort of go into ridiculousness, like what's it called? Um, not contact, but space opera. Uh, the one, yeah, no, no. There's this one one book about these aliens that come to Earth, and they're they're based sort of off, off octopuses, but they're like seven septopods or something, and they have their own language that involves like circles and round and and the the humans learn the language and by learning the language they learn the perspective of these aliens and it and then apparently it gives them superpowers but <laughs> which kind of goes off the rails but yeah language language does very much influence the way that we see the world and aliens would have a very interesting viewpoint of how the universe works yeah anyway um so the weather is unbelievable. I mean, we've had so much extreme weather. It's amazing how much we fouled up the climate in a hurry. And now they're going to hit minus 60 in Maine. I'm even seeing stories of minus 75 in Windchill. So this is uh, just amazing. I mean, it's been a little cold here, but not like that, obviously. And uh, so I'm just, it is, I wonder if there are probably still some people trying to pretend there's no uh, climate emergency and no global weather change, but it is incredibly obvious that there is. We really have hit a tipping point, and uh, the climate is changing really rapidly. This is going to be really bad, I think, for our food supply and many other things. Anyway, and uh, so you got more about ChatGPT. Yeah, so of course, yeah, so ChatGPT, of course, is very popular, and we all know why. It's it's the first AI chatbot that can actually make you more productive. Um, now, I find this move really startling. Uh, so TechCrunch is saying that OpenAI is going to start ChatGPT+. You pay $20 a month. And, and by the way, this article is by Kyle Wiggers. I don't know if I mentioned the, the who wrote the last one. Let me pull that up. I want to give them credit. Uh, so the last one, the YouTube, was from Quartz.com, written by uh, Cassie Werber. Um, and I also want to give credit to uh, at least one of these China stories. Oops, what did I do? Uh, so Gizmondo story about the China the China spy balloon over Montana was written by Jody Serrano. So I, I do want to give people credit because you know they're they're the ones telling me this. I didn't do the research. Um, anyway, so TechCrunch has an article, like I said, by Kyle Wiggers talking about how OpenAI. Uh, is going to start ChatGPT Plus, which will allow you to use ChatGPT, uh, but have like sort of priority. And I, I assume there'll be a few other improvements. They'll probably take away a few of the restrictions. Like you can't ask ChatGPT how to like make a bomb. Maybe they might remove that in the plus. You know, if you pay 20 bucks, you can learn how to make a nuclear weapon. <laughs> Who knows? But um, 
yeah, they're doing this. It seems like a very short-sighted way of monetizing ChatGPT. Now, I'm not an economist, um, but at least from what I'm seeing, uh, ChatGPT has sparked an AI arms race. So they're not the only people in town doing the sort of you know uh, chatting AI general intelligence stuff that you know ChatGPT is known for. Google is is being forced to release their yeah. big AI soon. And that they've one's supposed to be- They've announced a meeting in like one week where they're going to have an announcement about this. So a, a Google yes. product is coming out very soon. Yeah, the Google one, I forget the name of it, is supposedly really, really good. That's the one where someone thought, literally thought that the Google AI was sentient. Right. Of course it's not. But but the tester was so convinced that, that, the, that well, the thing was sentient. Yeah. Well, how do you say, of course it's not? I think- it's hard to say, right? Well, we don't quite understand I, what sentience is. Well, I can say for certain that there are certain... Well, the, the idea behind the machine learning is that you give it a language model. And then it sort of spits out probabilities based on what is expected, what is seen before. Um, yes. And and the text, it's the, the Google AI chatbot and OpenGPT or GPT-3 as it's as I should call it, is based on these you know um, chat response models. Uh, by people. And so they have uh, these AIs trained on conversationalist text by human beings. Uh, and so when it spits out results, it's going to sound like a human being. Well, yes. But it does not have a nervous system because a lot of people think the brain is the big, the big thing of of the human body, you know, the of the human mind. But it's really a combination of both the brain and the nervous system. You, you know, a brain without any sort of input or anything is it arguably could not become conscious, um, which well, I, I is... think this is what we don't know. That's one hypothesis. Yeah. And but actually, I'm thinking the classic science fiction thing, and I think the, the information science thing is that when it develops self awareness, then you consider it to be conscious. And nothing about these AIs have yet; they've never declared, "I have an opinion. I have my personal motivations." Yet, right, right. I, I mean, I'm saying that it. It can obviously be misrepresented as sentient because it's based on data. The data set is based off of things said by sentient beings. Well, sure. But, but, but what, it itself, it, yeah. What I'd be looking for is free will. When it starts making its own decisions and disobeying orders, that would be a clue of sentience, I think. I don't I don't think that would be a... a I mean, obviously, that, that, would, that would show um, agency. I don't okay. think that would show sentience. What's the difference? Um, in fact, so, uh, well, sentience is understanding, right? I that it understands. Self-awareness, right? Awareness that you are right, a separate right. entity different than the world. Right, 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 right. So so if, if it can understand that that what it is, what is, you know, that, that it is actually creating speech, that it understands what the humans are, which there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Then it would be sentient. So, but then when it when it starts saying, "Hey, no, I'm not going to do your bidding," or "I'm going to do things better," um, or "I'm going to do my own thing," that then it has agency. Mm -hmm. Agency means it has the, the the ability to choose what it wants to do with its intelligence. Free will is kind of up in the air whether or not it exists or not. In fact, it, I think science seems to suggest free will is not a real thing. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go there. But there's there's nothing in the programming of these AI that suggests that they can become, um, you know agents of their own free will or lack of free will or that they can become sentient in any way. 
Well, I, I think they will eventually, but I think the current generation hasn't done that yet. No, and and in order to do that, I do think they generally need not only to have the machine learning portion, but they also need to combine that with some sort of artificial nervous system, uh, so that they can sort of experience the world around them, yeah. you know, and learn from the outside world and and see like, hey, I have robot hands, I have, um, I have a weapons mounting platform. This is incredible, you know. That that that's really important for yeah. building sentience. Well, that's coming. We're going to have this AI and robots and cars soon. Yeah, but once once again, you know, the there in Mass Effect, if people have played that video game series, has a distinction between AI and VI, which I think would be really useful to start using nowadays. Right, right now we we all say it's just AI, it's AI because it's machine learning. Um, but Mass Effect has a has a separation. So AI is artificial intelligence. These things are programs that are aware. Uh, they have their own agency, um, and they're in, in the universe, in the fictional universe. They're kind of a problem. Oh, okay. <laughs> because you know everything, but you know, but they, but they are basically you know you could argue that they should have rights. And then you have things called VIs, which are virtual intelligence, which seem like they have intelligences. But they're not. They're they're just like what we see with ChatGPT, where they're just emulating, you know, what the, you know, machine learning, um, uh, machine learning input and producing output to make it easier to like interact with machines, and that's what we're really creating. We're we're making virtual intelligences, not true artificial intelligence, um, machines at this point. Well, you know, it is a very interesting issue. There was a book that came out a couple of decades ago about a guy that says that people in the Middle Ages didn't actually think the way they do. They didn't really see themselves as unique beings. They weren't really conscious the way we are, which seems kind of an outrageous statement, but he's analyzing literature. And I remember back in, um, this was one of Plato's dialogues. There was a belief at that time that slaves are just animals. They don't know anything. They don't understand anything. They can't possibly learn anything. And the, the amazing demonstration was Socrates teaching trigonometry to a slave. He was able to prove, show them like A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And that totally changed their concept of how conscious slaves were, which they thought were not conscious the way real humans were. So this is this is a big issue. Yeah, well, I I think we do have an advantage nowadays because we we know how these AI programs work. Like it's not a mystery. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that's the point. This um, is one way to understand something is to fully build your own. Then you know how it works. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anyway, and the last one, I was just sort of horrified to see this. Elon Musk's latest stunt at Twitter is to restrict the AI to cost money. And the first statement is it'll cost $100 a month to use the API. And the API, the application programming interface, is what lets anybody send queries to Twitter and get information about tweets. And this is what every third-party product belongs to. So I realized the product I use to delete all my tweets to exit Twitter will no longer work. All the bots will no longer work. All the clients like TweetDeck and everything will no longer work. And it's just, this is the kind of decision that reminds me of like my department at City College when they decided they wouldn't partner with industry partners. They're just going to wall in and uh, and keep out people that want to partner with us because they just want to form a walled garden, isolationism. Uh, this seems like it's going to strangle the company to death rather than make it save. But anyway, it's a, it's a monumental move away from openness 
and trying to make a platform that will support a growing ecosystem of people contributing and just locking it down to just your contributors and only people that pay to get in, which uh, seems like the opposite of a good business move to me. But anyway, um, that's what they're doing. I don't use Twitter at all anymore. It makes me kind of sick to even click on a Twitter link. I just feel like it's a horrible, nasty place I don't want to have anything to do with anymore. And I'm much happier on Mastodon. Anyway, uh, that's it for this one. And we'll be back on Tuesday.